This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Wednesday, October 5th. Coming up, two years ago, Kansas settled a lawsuit over the way the state's foster care system treated children. Has the state lived up to the terms of the settlement? Plus, some employees of federal food stamp programs are paid so little that they've also faced food insecurity. You can't hire anybody because they're so low, because you can go to work at McDonald's in Tulsa and make $15 an hour. But first, some headlines. A hearing is set for today in Wyandotte County Court that will once again scrutinize the tactics of indicted former Kansas City, Kansas police detective Roger Golubsky. KCUR's Peggy Lowe reports. Brian Betts and Celester McCoy were convicted of murder in 1997. They say Golubsky coerced false testimony from a witness who has since recanted. That's exactly what happened in the case of Lamont McIntyre, who Golubsky reportedly set up for a 1994 double homicide. McIntyre says Golubsky is connected to many cases and should have to answer for his role in them. I'm talking about change where it starts with uh, holding people accountable. I think if, if we don't start holding people accountable, we're going to always see this stuff. McIntyre was exonerated and released from prison in 2017. Golubsky was arrested last month by the FBI and faces charges that he kidnapped and raped several women. Missouri's special session on taxes came to an end yesterday when lawmakers sent a slew of agricultural tax credits to Governor Mike Parson. The bipartisan-supported measures include incentives for urban farming, meat processing, and farming equipment. Earlier in the special session, lawmakers also passed a law lowering Missouri's state income tax. COVID-19 numbers in the Kansas City metro are nearly at six-month lows, but some health leaders are predicting a surge may not be far away. KCUR's Noah Taborda reports. The Kansas City metro saw an average of 166 cases per day for the week ending September 24th, down from 212 the week prior, according to the most recent data from the Mid-America Regional Council. This marks the lowest daily case count since late April. Still, a possible surge in the winter is leading some local health departments to ramp up precautions. Platte County, for one, is offering a series of events for residents to get their flu and COVID-19 vaccines, a drive through option on October 10th at Platte City Middle School, and a clinic at the health department's Parkville office on October 14th. The Missouri Supreme Court has declined to discipline a former Jackson County prosecutor for her conduct in the trial of a man who spent 23 years in prison for crimes he didn't commit. KCUR's Lisa Rodriguez reports. Last week, Missouri's chief disciplinary counsel recommended that Amy McGowan's law license be suspended indefinitely, alleging she failed to disclose exculpatory evidence to the attorney for Ricky Kidd. Kidd was convicted for two murders in 1996 and sentenced to life in prison before being exonerated in 2019. But the Missouri Supreme Court determined there was not sufficient evidence to establish any claims of professional misconduct. McGowan has been accused of withholding evidence in other cases. She retired as a Douglas County, Kansas prosecutor in 2019, shortly after Kidd was freed from prison. The foster care system in Kansas has long been under scrutiny for not having enough foster homes or mental health treatment for children. Many foster children have bounced around from home to home or have had to sleep in offices rather than homes. In 2018, foster care advocates sued Kansas over these practices. And in 2020, they reached a settlement where the state agreed to meet certain benchmarks for housing and mental health treatment. 
According to a recent audit, Kansas met one of those goals by placing 86% of foster children in a stable home. But the report found that mental health treatment is still being delayed for some kids, and more than 50 children still slept in offices last year. KCUR's Steve Kraske spoke to Laura Howard, who heads the Kansas Department for Children and Families, about how her agency plans to tackle the foster care system's remaining challenges. In the um, period that the settlement report looked at, we had 69 stays of youth in, in offices. And that was down from 139 and 152 the years before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those youth, um, you've heard me say high needs kids a lot because that's really where we're kind of laser focused right now. So we've, we've just put in place um, some new provisions with our providers um, to have what we might call standby beds um, with foster um, with foster homes, uh, also with residential facilities, where we'll make a kind of a standby pay for them to reserve certain um, placements for those youth who might otherwise be hard to place. Um, and then also, um, you know, kind of a failure to place network where we're kind of trying to incentivize a number of partners in our system to work together to get those numbers down to zero. Why is it that any child would wind up spending an evening in an office? What happens? Are they simply waiting? Waiting for a foster home to open up or, 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 or a slot or how does that work? You know, it could be a lot of different things. Um, it could be everything from an older youth who just maybe refuses to go to a home, you know, and they, they just refuse to do that. Most of the instances, though, that we see are youth who have, you know, high mental health issues, um, maybe have had some behavioral issues. Um, they may not be able to play, be placed with other children for various reasons. And so they may need some very specialized care. And so what we do in those circumstances, um, there's like a da- almost a daily meeting, and it's not just the contractors, it's the Medicaid managed care organization saying what's an appropriate placement for this youth. And it's usually something um, you know that needs to be very specialized. And that's why I'm kind of laser focused on how do we address the needs of that small percentage of youth who have really high needs where we clearly still have some gaps in our system. One other metric I wanted to ask you about, it's so important here, and that's the number of cases that any caseworker winds up being responsible for, Laura. The maximum caseload under state contracts is 25 to 30 kids, but many caseworkers are are still carrying loads that exceed that. That's what the audit report just uh, found and, and laid out for us. Why is that the case? A lot, of, a lot of workforce issues, a lot of turnover issues, and I'm really pleased that we were able... Um, turnover because of low salaries, or, or what is the issue there? You know, turnover can happen for a lot of different reasons. You know, the work is hard. You know, it's it's this is um, one of the hardest jobs, I think, that exists out there. I don't have um, any doubt about that. Yeah, you know, it has a lot of, um, you know, I think, emotional impact on the worker um, with the things that they see, the, the work that they're doing each day. I, so that's one piece. Um, Obviously, you know, we sit here today in such broad workforce challenges, so competition for workers, um, issues around salaries. So I was really pleased that we were able to receive some resources from the legislature to um, provide um, some incentives, not just to our own staff, but some additional bonuses and recruitment and retention dollars that we were able to share with our child welfare providers. And so um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will make some impact. I'm sure we'll still need to make additional investments 
students as well. You know, the state still has an unusually high number of children who have run away from foster care. The Star reported that Kansas was one of only four states that reached 7%. That's the highest percentage recorded among the states, along with Delaware, Maryland, and Nebraska. Uh, this is a report released by the U.S. Department of Health and Senior Services Office of the Inspector General. Why so many missing children? You know, in terms of the youth who run, um, you know, Kansas in that report did show up at a high level. I, I, you know, I could argue about the data and say there's a little bit of apples and oranges because I think we report in a very comprehensive way. Um, but the fact is, I think the important piece is what we're doing about that. Um, and we've continued to invest in, a spe- in special response teams where we have targeted staff across all of our providers um, who are um, building relationships with those youth. And for example, um, I'd, I'd really call out um, TFI, who's one of our case management providers. Um, they, they've had several periods um, where they've ended up with actually no youth on the run. And they actually just worked with the University of Kansas um, to do a study of why youth run and what those facets are. And some very interesting things that we can build on there. For example, the importance of maintaining relationships with siblings. Um, very often, they talked about the desire to see their siblings. They're often running home. Um, not always, but often. And so just some facets there where I think we can really learn a lot from that study and from some of the work that one of our providers has done. So we're trying to spread those lessons learned across the system, Steve. Uh, again, what else do we know about why kids run away from foster care? What's, what's going on there? Uh, like I said, the majority of kids, I mean, they're they're running home. Um, they, I, I think what I think is really important is, in, in my view, the reason kids run is that they, they don't um, feel that they have a strong relationship, a strong bond with someone. And that's a bit why we've created the special response team. I think we know that when youth um, feel like they have particular bonding um, with an individual, with a person, with a mentor, with anything like that, they're far less likely to run. That was KCUR's Steve Kraske and Laura Howard, Secretary of the Kansas Department for Children and Families. You can hear their entire conversation from up to date at KCUR.org. About 10% of U.S. households don't have enough food, and there are a number of federal programs in place to help bring that number down. One of those programs is the Supplemental Nutrition Education Program, or SNAP-Ed, which involves educating food stamp recipients about low-budget eating. But according to an investigation by Harvest Public Media and the Midwest Newsroom, some employees of the SNAP-Ed program are paid so little that they themselves are experiencing food insecurity. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports. Hi guys, would you like to try some roasted garbanzo beans? Once a month on a Saturday morning, Del Jacobs sets up a booth at the Urbana Farmers Market in central Illinois. People periodically walk by her booth, which today features a simple, healthy recipe. And then put it in the oven at 400 for 40 to 50 minutes. I go longer because I like a crunch. This is just one of Dell's responsibilities as a SNAP-Ed community worker. She also runs community cooking classes, visits food pantries, and teaches SNAP recipients how to eat healthy on a budget. But this, meeting people at the farmer's market, is her favorite part of the job. I just love talking to people of all walks of life, and that's what I get to do in this job. What Dell doesn't like about the job is the pay. 
At the time we met, Dell was making $13.79 per hour. She'd been working there for six years, and over that time, her pay increased by just a dollar an hour. She says the pay is so low that, ironically, she herself has qualified for SNAP benefits. She took an additional job to make ends meet. Once a week, I clean a house for $25 an hour, and isn't that sad that I get more for cleaning a house. Dell's not alone. According to an investigation by Harvest Public Media and the Midwest Newsroom, SNAP-Ed employees across the Midwest make on average about $13 an hour. The SNAP-Ed program is grant-funded through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In most Midwestern states, it's run by a land-grant university. So in Dell's case, the University of Illinois determines her wage. Jennifer McCaffrey is the SNAP-Ed program coordinator in Illinois. She knows that some of her employees struggle financially. Yeah, it it does concern me. But you kind of have to find out, well, what does this individual need that can help them? So is it more affordable housing? It runs the gamut, right? Dell says what she needs is a higher wage which she did finally receive just recently. She now makes $16.51 an hour. And she's not alone. In just the last few months, workers in Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, and Oklahoma also received wage increases. Candace Gable is the program director in Oklahoma. She just successfully raised her employees' wages from $10 to $12 an hour. But she says that's still not high enough to attract and retain workers. You can't hire anybody because they're so low, because you can go to work at McDonald's in Tulsa and make $15 an hour. But Gable only has so much wiggle room. After all, SNAP-Ed is a USDA grant-funded program. So if she wants to increase wages, she probably has to cut the number of positions. And if we don't have enough people to reach the population, then how are we going to meet our goals? Goals like reducing Oklahoma's high obesity rate or teaching healthy eating habits to children. To do that and pay her employees a living wage, Gable says she needs more money from the USDA. The USDA declined to speak on the record for this story, but did send a statement emphasizing that it's up to each state to determine staff salaries. But there's a cap to each state's SNAP-Ed funding allocation. That number is determined by a formula in the Farm Bill, which is set to be reaffirmed next year. A new formula could mean more money for states, and by extension, for SNAP-Ed workers like Dell Jacobs. And while Dell did get a recent raise, she says she's still fighting to earn a living wage. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains, including KCUR. And the Midwest Newsroom is a collaboration among NPR and public radio stations in Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Dana's story about SNAP-Ed, visit kcur.org, where you can find more local news from Kansas City's NPR station. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.
Kansas City Today keeps you on top of what's going on across the metro and region every weekday. I'm Zach Wilson. The Kansas City Today podcast often uses voices from KCUR's daily talk show, Up to Date, that I help produce. To hear some of these conversations in full, subscribe to the Up to Date podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.